of New England. It was referred to the Great Awakening. One church in Enfield, Connecticut, was resistant to the revival that was taking place. So the pastor of that church said, I want to invite another pastor from Northampton, Massachusetts, to preach a sermon that he preached to his congregation and got a good response. And so on July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards was invited to preach a sermon that some say is the most, the greatest sermon of all time. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His key verse was from Deuteronomy 32, 35, and it's just the first part of it. It's the vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. He built a sermon off of that. It was a pretty powerful sermon. And it got the response that they were hoping for. Sort of the key outline was, corrupt sinners face a fearful judgment. Time is short for the unrepentant. God's righteous wrath will come suddenly and unexpectedly. It is only God's free choice that extends the days of mercy and provide another opportunity to respond to his call. All that can sound very good. But the, the key part of his, his sermon was around Deuteronomy. It was around the feet slipping. And the idea that as sinners, we're standing on slippery ground. And that slippery ground will actually lead into a pit where we will be condemned, sent into eternal damnation, into the pit of hell. That's what he saw in that Deuteronomy scripture, was the slippery slope that goes into hell. I want to just quote one of his parts of his sermon, my favorite part of his sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes. Than, than the most hateful venomous serpent is in yours, in ours. You have offended him uh, infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Welcome. <laughs> At the time, this was a real, uh, uh, this was the kind of sermon that they felt they needed. It was a 32-minute sermon. It got so emotional that at times he had to stop and silence the people because there was so much screaming and terror or moaning 
or crying. Is this what we see the wrath of God is? He even talks about this idea that it's at God's pleasure. He uses those words. This was an important sermon. It was one that was quoted numerous times. Many of you might have heard of it. Some of you might have read it. But is this what we hear when we hear the wrath of God? Because most people, when they hear the words wrath of God, they think punishment, judgment. They think of God, that's what his job is. I've struggled with this. I've struggled with it to reconcile the God that I know. And is this how I see God? Is this how some of you see God? I mean, when it comes to this vengeful, condemning God, I've seen Christians almost be giddy about this idea of people that aren't saved like me are going into hell. When we were down in uh, Seattle, Sue and I went to watch the Blue Jays play in Se- against Seattle. And we had to sit in a cr- stand in a crowd for hours. But there were a couple of guys by each crowd that had these signs that were about 10 feet high talking about God's judgment and his wrath on everyone there. It was so hard to say, I'm one of them. Because the audience were not open, they weren't receptive, and they believed probably that why would I want to serve a God that just dangles me over a pit like a spider in a fire? Whose desire is to correct our sinful nature, and this was the way to do it. That if we disobey this God that we serve, he'll wipe us out. People can love or hate God's wrath, depending on what position they're in or how they see it. When Edwards was preaching this sermon, he put in that scripture, slipping into hell, which really wasn't what the scripture was saying to the Israelites at that time. And he also said, used the scripture from John 3.18. He used this one portion. He said, who does not believe, he who does not believe is condemned already to hell. Let me read, this is the whole passage. This comes after John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it says next that God didn't condemn the world, but he came to save the world. And then he says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
This, see it says, and this is the condemnation. I don't see the word hell in there. But Jonathan Edwards added it because it fit with his narrative. And yet, you see it through Romans, we see it in John here, that he, Christ didn't come to condemn the world. Even the view of hell, in the context of that scripture in, in Deuteronomy, Jews didn't look at hell like this at all. I mean, they actually believe in a hell, but it's called Gehinnom. Here's a quote I want to read you from a rabbi who wrote this. Hell is not a punishment in the conventional sense. It is, in fact, the expression of great kindness. Jewish mystics described a spiritual place like Gehinnom. This is usually translated as hell. But a better translation would be the supernal washing machine, because that's exactly how it works. The way our soul is cleansed in Gehenna is similar to the way our clothes are cleansed in a washing machine. A heavenly washing machine. So something was injected into scriptures that wasn't intended, but it fit with our narrative. It fit with what we were presenting. And so when people hear those words, wrath of God, they naturally go to that place of looking at who God is. Our scripture, beginning of our scripture says these words that we're looking at today. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. This was talking to believers. This was talking to the church. And the idea is, that there is this ungodliness that takes place in our world, but it was taking place as well in the lives of followers of Christ. And in the NIV, it says godlessness and wickedness. But I like how that translates. It's closer to the Hebrew uh, in the uh, ESV, but also in the, the King James Version. But it talks about ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that word for unrighteousness means injustice, morally, wrongfully, unjust behavior. This seems to take away some of that evilness that we associate with wickedness. And it mirrors the scripture from last week. Last week we talked about, this week we're talking about the, the wrath of God, but this last week we're looking at the righteousness of God. It says, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteousness, righteous will live by faith. God's righteousness and his wrath are being revealed from heaven. Both wrath and righteousness are, accept, are, are expressed in a more present tense. That it's not something that's coming, it's something that's here. 
that it's being revealed from heaven, that it's being exposed, and that even where it said in that passage uh, back in um, John is that people were already condemned. It's their own sinfulness that condemned them. That the wrath of God seems to be associated more with the consequences of their sinfulness. He wasn't looking to wipe them out. They were doing that on their own. That our sinfulness is bringing us to that place where we are condemned. But not by God that way. Because it says in this passage, I'll read other ones, he didn't come to condemn. I do not condemn. That's where I've struggled when I hear those people when I hear those preachers on the street, and God bless them, they feel like they're doing something to bring people to Christ. But there's something about it that it's lacking that place of who God is. It says here we live, the righteous will live by faith which is not believing in doing the right things or by acting and doing the right things. As Shannon shared before, it's, it's not behavior modification. The righteousness will live by faith, not by fear. And it's not our righteousness, it's God's righteousness. It's our faith in the transforming power of God's righteousness. And unrighteousness is void of that faith and power. In, in the rest of this Romans passage, it says, for, this invisible ad, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, <coughs> excuse me, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We should know better. We should also know better because of what these believers knew. Did they know God's character? Is this the God that we chose to serve, this God who takes people out? And sometimes we like the idea that I'm on the good side. But again, he's talking to believers. Even the disciples got it wrong. And this is one of my favorite stories. They had this idea too. Um, this is a story of James and John who walked with Jesus. He called them the sons of thunder. Here's why. As time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy, to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. 
How brazen can you be? To defend the honor of Jesus Christ, that that's our job, is to defend the honor of Jesus Christ by saying, Lord, let us call down fire from heaven to take them out. They want to destroy a village because of their view of Jesus Christ. That's unbelievable. Yet, how many of you felt that? Take someone out. Remove them that are doing the things that are unjust, that are doing the things that are unrighteous. We just want to say, take them out. And I've been wrestling with this, with uh, Sue shared with me something we got from a friend, where you've got psalms that pray that God will do his thing on the enemy. But Jesus does something in this that I want you to see. Because it's the character of God. He, no, the, the last one there. He actually turned to these disciples and he rebuked them. He was angry at them. He told them off. I wish I knew the exact words that he said, but he rebuked them and corrected them. He corrected them to say, that's not what we do here. He could have just said, hey, settle down. This isn't the time or the place. But that's not what he did. He rebuked them. Because they didn't understand God's character. Do we look at God's wrath in the light of God's character? I was reading... uh, uh, an article by uh, Daniel Nevins. He's a, he's a previous dean of a rabbinical school. And uh, he's frustrated with this, the wrath of God. And here's what he says. He says, There's an expression that appears periodically in the popular press that annoys me to no end. The Old Testament God of wrath. How's that? God in the Tanaka or the Hebrew Bible vacillates between postures of patience and anger, justice and mercy. This nuanced paradoxical portrait of God is evident through the Torah, most famously in Exodus 34-7, which describes God's enduring mercies and tenacious retribution within a single verse. He's frustrated that in the scriptures, in the the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Bible, that's not what he sees about the wrath of God. He sees this posture that wrath of God is one of patience, where we hear he's slow to anger, but that he angers. That he's a God of justice, but he's compassionate and has mercy. In Romans 8, the last series we did, it says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. To be clear, 
God's wrath, that it's, He is angry. And anger is a part of it. Even Christ got angry when He flipped over the tables in the temple. I remember watching uh, a Christian, uh, one of those Christian talk shows, and my dad was telling me about it. He said, uh, he said it was interesting to hear them talking, and one of the hosts said that God's anger, or no, he said that anger is evil. And we aren't to be ever angry. And the theologian that was on said, oh, that's not true. God gets angry. It's one of his characteristics. But it's not the whole of who he is. And when we're in the place of judgment, we love the God that's angry <clears throat> and takes it out on people. But what we're not talking about, and Steve pointed this out to me, and it's the word that I think we look at, we look at the, God, the wrath of God as the God of rage. A God that can, can't control his temper. That he has to take somebody out. That kind of father does scare me. Some of you might have that experience with a father, that his rage is so great that he can't be contained. Sometimes I think we put that onto our God and believe that he is that God i got to be careful. I'm walking on eggs. If I do something wrong, he can take me out. And the way that Jonathan Edward talks about it, he's ready to do it. He's dangling you over that pit. He is ready to do it. So if you trip up, you'll suffer the consequences in the pit of hell. That is not who I see God as. We even look at the cross. We even think that the way the cross works is that if God loses it, Jesus will jump in to protect us. That's well, not what the cross is. The cross was about reconciliation. The cross was about bringing us into right right place, righteous place with God. And I guess the question that was put out, and I had so many notes between Steve and Shannon and myself that um, it was really challenging because there's so much stuff that we had. But Shannon placed in there, said the big question is what makes God angry, not what brings God's judgment. I think that's important. What makes him angry? Because he does get angry. But it doesn't mean it's right to judgment. He is angry. He does get angry. But this is in light of a loving father, a good father. We sing those words, we speak those words. But how in the same breath can we be saying he's also the God that is out of control? That you can't contain him. Even listening to words, and I forget what the song is, but his wrath is satisfied. Really makes me uncomfortable. 
But there is something about his anger being calmed down. One of the scriptures that we'll read later on, I won't get into the whole thing, but it's in Romans 9 to 11. It says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've been been justified already by his blood. And what says saved through God's wrath or anger through him, we're not talking about that destructive, out-of-control rage. And I mean, sure, God was angry because we were seeing God as our enemy. We saw him as a person that was wrecking our lives or destroying our lives, that his anger was, again, over the top. N.T. Wright talks about God's wrath as a, uh, God's wrath was calmed by Jesus' death. And that's why Paul begins Romans addressing that wrath. That wrath isn't in play. Jesus has done something to help with this reconciliation. And he's angry at how we've distorted what creation was to be, what, the, what he had for this world that we have destroyed it in our sinfulness. But he still sees that there's something beautiful under all of it. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Where the prodigal son didn't like how he was being treated. Didn't like how his brother was getting treated better than him. And so he asked for his inheritance. Then he goes off to the big city, blows all his money, on very sinful lifestyle and ended up feeding pigs. He was living in that place of really dishonoring his father. Paul, when he looks at this, when he took this passage, he's He's seeing something different, which is really like a key passage within this whole book. He's not framing it with God's wrath, but with God's love. His wrath is rooted in love. God's wrath occurs because rather than behaving like God's children, we behave like we are God's enemies. Or that God is our enemy. That's the way the prodigal son saw his dad. He's the enemy because you did things that I don't like. And he decided, I will live my life the way I believe. The amazing thing is, you want to know, that's the wrath of his father where he says, go do it. Go live that life. I'll even give you the money. That's wrath. That's him saying, you do it. 
That's what wrath seems to be. It seems to be more the consequences and of God saying, you can do that. That frustration that we feel sometimes as a father when you're, when, when you're saying to your kids, you can't do this in my house. And they say, I'm going to do it anyways. And I say, you're out. Go. Do it. But I'm not the enemy. And the prodigal son saw that. Is that what we're like? Is that what we're like where we are saying, I just want to do what I want to do. Are we like that? You see that in our series in the summer, more like us than we think. That you saw people just like us making those choices in Scripture that we can relate to. But God's anger is like that loving father. Angry at his kids that he may punish them, but a good father doesn't rage against them. This may be difficult to reconcile within ourselves. Because many of us were raised with that within church, of that idea of the wrath of God. But what if it's just him being angry? What if it's him just saying, do what you want? Because we are then condemned because of ourselves. We're not condemned by God because it says over and over, he doesn't condemn. Jesus says, didn't come into the world to condemn. It's not condemnation. It's not the place of, I've got most of you. And the way that John Edwards' sermon is, it seems to be that everyone's hovering over hell. And until you make the right decision, you'll still dangle there. And the weight of your sin is what will cause you to fall. That's the view of it. But that's not what seems to be spoken in Romans. I think we get it wrong. Because I think we've been told this is what it is. It's interesting, Paul says that Christ died for us while God was still perceived as our enemy. And that we treat God God as, as an enemy and we became enemies of God because we took our inheritance, squandered it unwisely. But God still gave us his son, even when we were still calling him our enemy. It wasn't, when you stop calling me an enemy, then I'll do it. He said, I'm going to do this anyways. Salvation is there. Reconciliation is there. Receive that. Not until you do this, you don't get that. He already gave it. The great reconciliation happened not because we were repentant, but it was in spite of our repentance. He still did this. I think sometimes we can get that wrong, is that repentance comes 
from knowing this. Not because someone said you were dangling over hell. I mean, that sermon worked. Many people came to faith. The revival continued. It was a catalyst in the Great Awakening. That message spread. But I'm not sure that's what the message that God intended it to be. He wanted people to come in faith, not in fear. And when I hear those preachers on the street that are speaking fear, I just wanted to jump by so sore. I said, what would it be like if I jumped out with my loudspeaker and began to proclaim a God of love? A God that saved you already. That he doesn't condemn. In the early passage, Paul said, I want to preach the gospel. What is the gospel for us? Is the gospel just about to repent, confess Jesus, and be saved? Or is it what we were talking about two weeks ago, that Paul was thrilled of how the church was, their lives were being reported around the world as people of faith? I want you to see that this is the context that we are going to be moving in to the, the next section, which is a challenging one, and I encourage you to read ahead. Uh, in the rest of one and going into chapter two. So I want you to see how, how we're speaking about the wrath of God. Is that we're not speaking about it the way that it has been spoken. But we're not saying God's not angry. He is angry, and he feels it. But he did something different. In his anger, Jesus Christ said, let me calm that, Father. Let me take that on. But we still can suffer wrath by stepping out of his will and doing what we want to do. That's the wrath of God. 